hey, and welcome. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Got a lot coming up for you this hour. A little bit on later this hour. Tim Carney, the author of the brand new bestseller, Alienated America, will join us to discuss what exactly colleges are for, what they actually do, and why that plays a part in how people view college and why parents would spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to lie, cheat, and steal their way into college for their kids. Also, a brand new report on Bernie Sanders' record of radicalism uncovered by Andrew Kaczynski over at CNN. We'll get to all of that in just a minute. First, the breaking news, President Trump will now be forced to use his first veto of his presidency after the Senate voted to reject his emergency declaration. Now, the House had voted to reject President Trump's emergency declaration last month. This would be the national emergency declaration that he is citing as a rationale for building a wall on America's southern border. On, when, on Thursday, the Senate passed a resolution to overturn President Trump's declaration of national emergency at the U.S.-Mexico border. According to the Washington Post, 12 Republicans joined all Democrats to deliver a bipartisan rebuke to the president. The 59-41 Senate vote sends the measure to President Trump's desk. Trump then tweeted out, all caps, veto, exclamation point, which technically is not how a veto works. You can't declare bankruptcy by simply going to the middle of a room like Michael Scott and shouting, I declare bankruptcy, and you cannot declare a veto simply by tweeting in all capital letters, veto, followed by an exclamation point. Still, the Senate vote stood as a rare instance of Republicans breaking with Trump in significant numbers on an issue central to his presidency, the construction of a wall along the southern border, according to the Washington Post. A lot of constitutional conservatives voting against the president on this one. They had offered a deal for him. We talked about it with Senator Mike Lee yesterday on the program. Senator Lee had put forward a bill that would have restricted the power to declare a national emergency to essentially a 30-day window. Congress could then vote with a simple majority to overturn a national emergency declaration within 30 days. It'd be sort of like the War Powers Act, which has really been rarely used, but supposedly should allow Congress to review the war-making power of the executive branch. Under Senator Lee's proposal, Trump, for example, could declare a national emergency on the southern border, and then within 30 days, it would sunset the national emergency unless it was rectified and, and put forward by the Congress. President Trump rejected that deal. That came as a shock to Vice President Mike Pence, who had tried to broker that deal with the Senate. Trump said, no, not going to sign anything like that, because then I'll just be accused of signing into law my own inability to actually build the wall. I don't want them restricting my supposed executive power. So he threatened to veto that, at which point the Republicans dropped that proposal and simply voted for the simple resolution to declare the national emergency null and void. Now, it would require to overturn this a supermajority in both the House and the Senate. That is not going to happen. So a simple veto by President Trump here essentially means that it will now be sent to the courts. As I've said before, the president does not need to declare a national emergency to do any of this stuff. All the president really has to do is declare under a specific provision of the law that there are drug corridors that are not sufficiently protected and he can build additional border fencing. Instead, he has decided to declare a national emergency in a situation where a national emergency is not applicable. It is not a national emergency when you can't pass a bill with Congress and then you don't like what Congress did, so you just declare a national emergency. For weeks, President Trump has sought to frame the debate in terms of immigration, arguing that Republican senators who supported border security should back him up on the emergency declaration. But for a lot of Republican lawmakers, it was about a bigger issue, the Constitution itself. So, for example, Senator Mitt Romney came forward. He said, listen, the reason I voted this down is not because I'm opposed to a border wall or border security. It's because... The executive branch does not have the capacity to keep expanding its power this way. I informed the president uh, last week uh, that I would be voting in favor of the resolution of disapproval. What did you say? 
Well, he'd rather have me vote uh, in a different direction, but I let him know that this for me is a matter of uh, defending the Constitution. Okay, Mitt Romney released a statement also. He says, I will vote today for the resolution of disapproval. This is a vote for the Constitution and for the balance of powers that is at its core. For the executive branch to override a law passed by Congress would make it the ultimate power rather than a balancing power. This is not a vote against border security. In fact, I agree that a physical barrier is urgently needed to help ease the humanitarian crisis at the southern border. And the administration already has $4.5 billion available within existing authority to fund a barrier even without an emergency declaration. I am seriously concerned that overreach by the executive branch is an invitation to ex further expansion and abuse by future presidents. I think that Romney is correct on this. He says, we experienced a similar erosion of congressional authority with President Obama's unilateral immigration orders, which I strenuously opposed. In the case before us now, where Congress has enacted specific policy to consent to an emergency declaration would be both inconsistent with my beliefs and contrary to my oath to defend the Constitution. I think that Romney is exactly right about that. It's been fascinating to watch which senators voted to terminate the national emergency declaration and which senators decided to flip. So some of the more moderate senators who are not fans of Trump, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, they had always said that they didn't want this to be declared a national emergency, and they voted to terminate. Senator Pat Toomey, who is quite conservative, voted to terminate the national emergency declaration as well. So did Senator Lamar Alexander. But there were certain senators who sort of reversed themselves. For example, Senator Ben Sass, Republican of Nebraska, he said just a couple of weeks ago, quote, we absolutely have a crisis at the border, but as a constitutional conservative, I don't want a future Democratic president unilaterally rewriting gun laws or climate policy. If we get used to presidents just declaring an emergency anytime they can't get what they want from Congress, it will be almost impossible to go back to a constitutional system of checks and balances. Over the past decades, the legislative branch has given away too much power and the executive branch has taken too much power. So he said that just a couple of weeks ago. Now he has released a statement because he voted against terminating the national emergency. He said, we have an obvious crisis at the border. Everyone who takes an honest look at the spiking drug and human trafficking number knows this. And the president has a legal path to a rapid response under the National Emergencies Act of 1976. I think the law is overly broad and I want to fix it. But at present, Nancy Pelosi doesn't. So I'm therefore voting against her politically motivated resolution. As a constitutional conservative, I believe that the NEA currently on the books should be narrowed considerably. That's why I'm an original sponsor of Senator Lee's legislation. It's why I've repeatedly gone to the White House to seek support for National Emergency Act reform. He says, I urge, I urge both the majority and minority leaders to assist in moving this legislation through committee and quickly to the floor for debate, negotiation, and passage through the full Senate. If this Congress is serious and its concerns about decades of executive overreach, we will devote ourselves to systematically reclaiming powers Congress has been imprudently granting to presidents of both parties for far too long. This is a bad rationale. So Senator Sass is not wrong about anything here, but what he's basically saying is if I don't get what I want, which is a full-scale reconstruction of the National Emergencies Act, I'm not going to vote to strike down this improper use of the National Emergencies Act. He says the National Emergencies Act, in his view, allows the president's use this way, but he wants it narrowed. That's a, a way out, but that is not in coordination or conjunction with what he said earlier on all of this. He's not the only senator to flip on this. Senator Johnny Isaacson of Georgia had said earlier he had a lot of trouble with any one person having that much power without a check and balance, even in a crisis. I'm not universally opposed to it, but I'm also not without reservation. He voted in favor of Trump's national emergency declaration. Senator Ron Johnson, Republican of Wisconsin, who had said it would be a pretty dramatic expansion of how this was used in the past, voted in favor of the emergency declaration. Senator Tom Tillis wrote a full-scale op-ed ripping into the national emergency declaration and then proceeded to vote in favor of the national emergency declaration. So he just completely flipped 
after fully announcing he would vote to terminate. Senator John Cornyn did something similar. He said that he was concerned about an emergency declaration. He said, I also thought it would not be a practical solution. I thought there were other better alternatives. He voted in favor of the national emergency declaration. Senator Mike Rounds of South Dakota said, if you get another president who believes that climate change is the crisis of the day, that means they could then funnel money out of ongoing programs into climate change. I think that that concern is quite valid. He voted in favor of the national emergency declaration anyway. Now, the argument made by Republicans is, listen, if we're in power, when Democrats start doing this sort of stuff, we'll stop it. But it's difficult to make that argument on simple institutional grounds as opposed to political grounds. And at that point, the Constitution essentially becomes a political football to be kicked back and forth by the sides. The rules have to apply to everyone or we can't really expect anyone to abide by them. Either they apply to everyone or they apply to no one. Either the president of the United States gets to declare a national emergency when he wants in violation of the will of Congress, or he doesn't. You don't get to pick and choose when he does. And if you do pick and choose, you shouldn't be shocked when folks on the other side of the aisle also pick and choose. You can't accuse Nancy Pelosi of playing politics at the same time that you are playing politics with all of this stuff. Now, it wasn't just Mitt Romney who voted against the national emergency declaration. Marco Rubio voted against it. Senator Jerry Moran of Kansas did. Senator Rand Paul did. Senator Mike Lee did. There are a bunch of Republicans who voted. Should this have been struck down with super, with, with a super majority? Yes, it, it should have been. It should have been. Nonetheless, it, it is a, a sign of discontent in the Republican ranks with the overreach by the president that they voted in this way in the first place. With that said, Trump will veto it and this will just move on to the court. Right? So that's not the only bad news for President Trump today is that the Senate has voted against him and now he will simply veto them. Another piece of bad news for the president, a New York appellate court ruled on Thursday that President Trump must face a defamation lawsuit filed by former apprentice contestant Summer Zervos, who is one of about a dozen women who accused Trump of sexual misconduct shortly before the 2016 election. According to the New York Times, the ruling means that lawyers for Zervos may have the opportunity to question Trump under oath. So this is very much like when the Paula Jones lawyers got to petition President Clinton, they got to deposition President Clinton under oath. That did not end well for Clinton. Trump has called Zervos and other women who made accusations against him liars, prompting Zervos to file a lawsuit in 2017. Trump's lawyers have tried unsuccessfully to block the suit, arguing the president is immune from such lawsuits in state court. That is, I think, a a stretch. It's difficult to imagine why the president would be immune to a lawsuit, especially after Bill Clinton was held to be non-immune in a case of a sexual harassment allegation. In its ruling on Thursday, a panel of New York appellate judges rejected that argument. They cited Clinton v. Jones specifically, which established that the president can be sued while in office for unofficial acts. Two of the five judges on the panel dissented in part. The judges said, quote, contrary to defendant's contention, Clinton v. Jones did not suggest its reasoning would not apply to state court actions. It merely identified a potential constitutional concern. Notwithstanding that concern, this court should not be deterred from holding that a state court can exercise jurisdiction over the president as a defendant in a civil lawsuit. Now, it'll be interesting to see what sort of the legal analysts say about this because it does open the door to abuse of this. You could theoretically have a situation in which a bunch of state actions are filed against a president simply so they can drag him into court. Trump's attorney said, we believe that a well-reasoned dissenting opinion by two of the five justices citing the U.S. Supreme Court decision in Clinton versus Jones is correct in concluding that the supremacy clause of the U.S. Constitution's bar state courts from hearing cases against the president while he or she is in office on a personal level. I am fine with the idea that a president should be held accountable for state crimes committed outside the scope of his office. Zervos has claimed that Trump forcibly kissed and groped her in December 2007 at the Beverly Hills Hotel in Los Angeles. Trump denies the allegations. 
you know, we'll see whether this thing actually actually moves forward with any sort of speed before President Trump is up for re-election in 2020. So I have been contending for the past several days, ever since this college scam admissions scandal broke, I've been contending that people have the wrong idea about what it is that elite colleges actually do. They don't actually create a skill set predominantly unless you're in maths or sciences. They're not there to necessarily increase your earning potential. They are there for credentialing and they are there for social fabric building. Well, joining me on the line is Tim Carney. Carney is a Washington Examiner columnist. He's also been published in a variety of other outlets. His brand new book is Alienated America, Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse, a New York Times bestseller. The book is terrific. And in it, Tim discusses the the fact that colleges have basically become an elite club that allows people to build a fake social fabric or a certain level of social fabric. And I thought it was kind of interesting. Tim, welcome to the Ben Shapiro Show. Thanks for having me, Ben. So, Tim, why do you think it is? I, I had one big question when I saw this college scandal. Why would super wealthy, uber famous parents spend enormous quantities of money to get their kids into these schools when they could just give the money to their kids and they're already famous? What, why exactly would they do this? <laughs> well, and the, to add on to that, why would you spend so much money to get your kid into a school he or she is not qualified for if they're not going to be able to handle the academics? And these both point to the same thing that you were just saying. And education is not why you go to the school. Entry into elite social circles is. And so having money definitely is one good way to buy yourself in. But going to these elite schools is sort of almost the surest bet. And that's, I think, exactly what they're doing. They're just buying, paying a very expensive membership into an elite club. And the sad thing, Ben, is that being that in or out is a huge determinant of how people end up. This used to not be so much the case, but right now, the people who graduated from college, I don't want to say college educated because it's not so much about the education. The people who have a college degree are in a club, an elite club in the United States today, and the people who are outside are, are seeing all their outcomes go way down. Now, I've seen a lot of folks on the left have looked at the scandal and said, well, you know, the real solution is college for all, right? Free tuition for all in, in the Bernie Sanders sort of formulation, I don't see how that follows because it seems to me that if you made college free for all, that wouldn't actually change anything because again, colleges are not really about anything other than credentialing and social fabric at this point. And you're not going to get any of those if college becomes universal. That's right. It's, it, this is one of the things, and uh, you mentioned my book earlier, and what I, one of the things I point out in Alienated America is that there's two groups of people who are having good outcomes, which is to say they're getting married before they're having kids, they're not doing as much drugs, that sort of thing. It's strong religious conservatives, think of uh, Salt Lake City and that sort of thing, and it's the elites. So much of liberal wonk policy is saying, hey, look how well the elites are doing. Why can't we make everybody be an elite? <laughs> Let's raise wages and give everybody higher wages. Let's make college free and give everybody a college degree, as if you could suddenly make everybody into an elite. But the truth is that America used to have sort of that second model a lot more, which was saying people get good outcomes if instead they are able to grow up in sort of a, a strong and healthy community with, with joint and higher purpose and lots of institutions bring them together. You cannot make everybody be an elite by definition. And that's part of the idea behind the, the, the free college idiocy. And we're speaking with Tim Carney. He's the author of Alienated America, Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse. Well, Tim, when, when we talk about these elites and we, we look at these kind of bubbles that exist on the coast of these elites, one of the great lies about this, and you wrote an opinion article in the New York Times about this, is that 
all of these elite bubbles are somewhat dysfunctional in terms of traditional values. And that, you say that that's a lie, that, that these elite bubbles are elite specifically because they don't follow a lot of what they preach. Yeah, the way to, again, the way to sort of have your life and your kid's life turn out well, this is not a new story. The social science has told us what, like, our, our grandmothers were telling our mothers. You finish school, even if it's not college, even if it's just high school, you finish school, you get a job, you get married, you have kids, all in that order, you get involved in your kid's life, and you stay involved in your community. That is increasingly uh, what happens just on the in the elite communities and decreasingly what's happening in the working class. So it's almost like this weird conspiracy of silence where there's this, you, it, it's bad to say you should, that children should be married in an intact family with a mother and a father and, uh, and that you should have a job to provide for your kids. Somehow that's bad to say, but that is the way that the elites around Washington, D.C., around New York, on the West Coast are doing it, and that's why their, uh, their kids are turning out all right. I'm not talking about, like, the crazy 1%. I'm not talking about Lena Dunham. I'm not talking about some of these other families that mm-hmm. are falling apart. That's the 1% of the 1%, the Hollywood ties. I'm talking about most of the top 20% are living these conservative lives. Well, Tim Carney is the author of the book Alienated America, Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse. You should go check it out. Go to Amazon. Go to wherever you buy books. Pick it up right now. The book is really terrific. Tim, thanks so much for joining the Ben Shapiro Show. Thanks, Ben. Have a good one. So this is a pretty amazing story. Speaking of the college admissions scandal, this is from the New York Post. Quote, maybe this is why Gregory and Marsha Abbott allegedly bought their daughter's way into college. Their rapper son, Malcolm, popped out of the family's Fifth Avenue building to smoke a giant blunt while defending his parents and bragging about his latest CD. Quote, they're blowing this whole thing out of proportion, said Malcolm Abbott outside the home that overlooks the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I believe everyone has a right to go to college, man. In between drags, Malcolm, whose father is founder of food and beverage distributor International Dispensing Corporation, admitted, I didn't go to college. The toker, who sports a ponytail and raps under the name Billa, then shamelessly plugged his music. Check out my CD, Cheese and Crackers. He said of his 2018 five-track record that includes a song titled, If I Lost My Money. Later, Malcolm emerged with his brother, who groused to the Post on Tuesday that his parents got roped into this by some guy who effing cheated them. The parents are accused of paying admitted mastermind Rick Singer $125,000 to boost their, their struggling daughter's ACT and SAT scores. Singer paid off an alleged crooked test proctor to inflate the girl's scores to a perfect 800 on the SAT math exam and 710 on the literature side. On the ACTs, her score of 23 out of 36 was up to a near-perfect 35, according to court filings. Both parents are out on half a million dollars bail each. So clearly they did a good job with Malcolm. You can see maybe that's probably why they wanted their daughter to go to college. Also, I think we have some good news. Malcolm will eventually be the front runner for the Democratic nomination in 2028. Since he's just taking a few years off to be with his music and toking a lot, and then eventually he'll find his way back home where he will run for office as a Democrat from El Paso. And meanwhile, Hallmark has cut ties with Lori Laughlin after she was charged in the college admission scandals. So Hallmark Channel cut ties with her. Apparently, they say they were saddened by the allegations and they've stopped developments of all productions involving Laura, Lori Laughlin. Before the announcement, she was on a lot of their movies. She was among its so-called Christmas queens who top line a slate of popular holiday movies. She stars in the ongoing Garage Sale Mysteries movie and the series When Calls the Heart. So that is bad news for her, obviously. I will say that of the various sins committed by people in Hollywood, this seems one. This seems like one that's pretty low on the list, to be honest with you. Also, 
Breaking news from CNN Politics. Andrew Kaczynski and Nathan McDermott at CNN Reporting. Bernie Sanders in the 1970s urged nationalization of most major industries. Whenever we go back over Bernie's record, the reason that all of this is relevant is because he still feels these same things. He has made clear that he actually still believes all the things he believed in the 1970s. He hasn't shifted his opinion on any of this stuff. So, you know what this calls for? I think, does this call for some Bernie Sanders theme music? Can we make that happen? Well, if we're going to talk about Bernie Sanders' Soviet record, it would be incomplete unless we actually play his theme music. Ah, there it is. According to Andrew Kaczynski over at CNN, Bernie Sanders advocated for the nationalization of most major industries, including energy companies, factories, and banks, when he was a leading member of a self-described radical political party in the 1970s. A CNN K-File review of his record reveals. Sanders' past views shed light on a formative period of his political career that could become relevant as he advances in the 2020 Democratic primary. Many of the positions he held at the time are more extreme compared to the more tempered democratic socialism he espouses today. Aspects of Sanders' plans and time in the Liberty Union have been reported before, but the material taken together, including hundreds of newly digitized newspapers and files from the Liberty Union Party archived at the University of Vermont, paint a fuller portrait of Sanders' views on state and public-controlled industry at the time. In a statement to CNN, Sanders' campaign spokesman, Josh Orton, said, Throughout his career, Bernie has fought on the side of working people and against the influence of both the powerful ultra-rich and giant corporations who seek only to further their own greed, as opposed to giant governments that seek to forward what? The public health? The record shows that from the very beginning, Bernie anticipated and worked to combat the rise of a billionaire ruling class and the exploding power of Wall Street and multinational corporations. Whether fighting to lower energy prices or expand access to capital for local development, Bernie's first priority has always been and always will be defending the interests of working people across the country. So that means that everything I'm about to redo is relevant. He has not changed a single opinion. He has not denounced a single opinion. So we have to assume that he still holds these opinions. After moving to Vermont in 1968, Sanders became an active member of the Liberty Union Party. Sanders ran for governor of Vermont in 72 and 76, and as a candidate for Senate in 72 and 74, he lost all of those races. Sanders also served as chairman of the party from 73 to 75. During this time, Sanders argued for nationalization of the energy industry, which has worked fabulously in Venezuela, public ownership of banks, telephone, electric, and drug companies, and of the major means of production, such as factories and capital, as well as other proposals, such as a 100% income tax on the highest income earners in America. And then they tell us that we exaggerate when we say that these folks are socialists. Sanders also rejected political violence and criticized the anti-democratic nature of communist states, such as the Soviet Union. He said, I favor the public ownership of utilities, banks, and major industries. He told that to the Burlington Free Press in 1976. And by the way, if Joe Biden's record on forced busing in the 1970s is relevant, this stuff is still relevant. In his career as a U.S. senator, Sanders has backed away from such ardent calls for nationalization. In one 2015 speech, he said he didn't want the government to take over private business or own the means of production. But I would like to see him ask directly whether he believes that the banks should be nationalized. That in the best of all possible world, like make a case why they shouldn't be nationalized, Bernie Sanders. like to hear that. He said at the time, the function of a radical political party is very simple. It is to create a situation in which ordinary working people take what rightfully belongs to them. Nobody can predict the future of the workers' movement in this country or the state of Vermont. It is my opinion, however, that if workers do not take power in a reasonably short time, this country will not have a future. He then proceeded to grow old on government largesse before running for president in the richest country in the history of mankind. 
1973, as chairman of the Liberty Union Party, Sanders had organized boycotts to stop proposed rate increases from the New England Telephone Company. He asked for nationalization of the telephone companies. He also campaigned on public ownership of the electric companies without compensating the banks and stockholders. So just public seizure of all of these companies without actually compensating the people who invested into these companies. He said in a press release in August 1976, quote, we have got to begin to deal with the fact that corporations do not have the God-given right to disrupt the lives of their workers or the economic foundation of their towns simply because they wish to move elsewhere to earn a higher rate of profit. So he wanted to force companies to stay in town. If they wanted to leave, they would have to get permission from the town and the workers in them. If the company didn't get that approval, they would be required by law to pay a guaranteed two years of severance for workers and 10 years of taxes to the town. And you know how stupid this is. It means that no business in the United States would ever open a business in Bernie Sanders' town, ever. Nationally, Sanders said at the time, legislation, corporation, there should be legislation with regard to corporations leaving cities, they would have to be dealt with by turning the means of production over to the workers. He said, in the long run, the problem of the fleeing corporations must be dealt with on the national level by legislation, which will bring about the public ownership of the major means of production and the conversion into worker-controlled enterprises. This is full-scale Soviet stuff. Every aspect of this is full-scale socialism. Asked about healthcare, Sanders said there would need to be publicly controlled drug companies. He said at the time he believed in socialized medicine and public ownership of the drug companies and placing doctors on salaries. He is still for all of those things, but we pretend that it's an actual practical thing in the United States to kick, you know, 160 million people off their healthcare plans and force doctors to pay for a government wage. He wanted to tax assets at 100%, not income, assets. In February 1976, Liberty Union put out a state tax proposal calling for a radical revamping of the system, including the removal of all taxes of sales, beverages, cigarettes, poles, and the use of telephones, railroads, or electric energy. Tax rates for those earning more than $100,000 would be 33.47%. Below that would be 19%, 13.56%. Anyone earning less than 10 grand would pay no state income tax at all. But during his 1974 Senate run, Sanders said one plan to expand government included making it illegal to gain more wealth than the person could spend in a lifetime and to have a 100% tax on incomes above this level. Sanders defined this as a million dollars annually. So if you made more than a million dollars annually, they would just come take all of your money, all of it. Not some of it, all of it. This dolt is maybe your Democratic presidential frontrunner. This guy. Okay, remember, Bernie Sanders is the intellectual thought leader of the Democratic Party. This guy, if he had his druthers, would be confiscating 100% of wealth from people who make too much money, which of course means that those people would stop working because when you tax people at too high a rate, they do not want to work anymore. They leave. They just are not going to stick around. See, the, the fundamental premise of a lot of socialistic redistribution programs is that there's a group of workhorses who will continue to work until they die, basically. And no matter what you do, you cannot disincentivize them from work. There's also a dramatic failure on the part of the left to recognize that a failure to endorse their giant government programs is not, in fact, non-compassionate. It's interesting. I did an interview today with a fellow from Slate. I think it's coming out next week. And this interview got pretty contentious because he was asking me about school lunch programs, about 
nutrition lunch programs at school. And I said I was generally against them. I think that the idea that the, the taxpayer is supposed to cover for your paying for your child's lunch at school is not only silly, it's not actually going to have any real impact. That school lunch programs are not the barrier between your child and starvation. And if they are, then you should not be in control of your child. If you literally do not have the capacity to feed your child in the freest country in the history of the world with more aid available on other levels than at any time in the history of the world, with charities available and food banks available, if your child is literally on the brink of starvation, we should not leave that child in your home. You are obviously unfit to be taking care of that child. If you have no resources and the kid is going hungry every single night, that is not a question of a systemic poverty driven by America's horrible system that can be fixed by a school lunch program. And in fact, it is not compassionate to children to leave them in a situation where they're a school lunch away from starvation. I'm a parent. The only thing in life that matters to me in the end is feeding my children. If I have $1, it goes to feeding my kids. $1. There's nobody in the United States who is not making $1 unless you have a serious mental or health problem, which would incapacitate you. And that would also apply to taking care of your child. And yet, if you say such things, if you point out that child starvation in the United States is not a problem, that 96% of children in the United States, according to polling data and according to census data, that 96% of children in the United States report never being hungry during a year, if you point that out, then you are considered non-compassionate. If you say that creating a dependency system in which parents don't take care of feeding their kids and expect the government to do it for them, that that doesn't create lifelong dependency. And by the way, drive down wages because it does drive down wages. If you don't believe what Democrats believe, you're non-compassionate. This is the baseline argument that is made by so many folks on the left. It is a bad argument. Compassion does not manifest only in you voting for taking somebody else's money. Compassion manifests in how much money you take out of your own pocket, what you are willing to do personally to help people. And that doesn't mean turning over a crap load of your money to some terrible government bureaucracy. It means giving charity. It means being involved in a social fabric. It means taking care of each other on a personal level. This doesn't mean that all government programs are unnecessary. It doesn't mean that local government voted for with the consent of the people at a local level shouldn't do more to help take care of the needy. It does mean that if you reject the efficacy of a government program, and you think that it is in fact more compassionate to look at individual situations and determine whether a kid is even safe in a home where they have no food, that maybe that's a better solution with more compassion than simply wiping your hands of the affair once you say, we'll throw a bunch of money at it, and then the kid throws the food in the garbage can. So we're talking about the fact that America is filled with wonderful people, and that is something that so many of the folks on the left refuse to acknowledge. Because if you think of America as really bad, that mandates serious governmental intervention. If, it, if you think that there are children, urchins, starving in the streets because of the failure of largesse in the United States, then obviously you want the government to do something about that. But if you think that it is an evil system that is creating a bunch of poor kids who are dying, then obviously we need to do something about the system itself. Now, is that true? No, it's not true. There are no children who are starving in the United States. Childhood hunger has been redefined by the federal government in recent years. They've called it food insecurity, right? That is the name they've given it, is food insecurity instead of actual hunger, okay? That is not the same thing. Food insecurity just means you're not getting the same kind of food that you actually wish you were getting. The Heritage Foundation talked about this as early as 2007. They talked about the fact that the USDA was reporting some 12 million households experiencing food insecurity. But food insecurity, they say, is a recurring or episodic problem rather than a chronic condition. 
In 2006, around two-thirds of food insecure households experienced low food security, meaning that these households managed to avoid any disruption or reduction in food intake throughout the year. Okay, so that means that virtually nobody is going hungry. At the extreme, about 1.4% of all adults in the United States went one day without eating during 2006. 1.4% for a day. Children are generally shielded from food insecurity. Around one child in 200 experienced very low food security and reduced food intake at least one time during 2006. During 2006. So the notion that school lunches are all that is separating these kids from eminent poverty, imminent poverty, is just not true. And if it is, then we should be looking at what to do to better those kids' lives on a holistic level, not just signing a check and giving them a plate of crappy hash browns and telling them to call it a day. The reason I bring this up is because, historically speaking, Americans have given a lot of money to charity. They reach out and they help their fellow man. Whenever there's a woman in our community who has a baby, people in my religious community provide her meals for legitimately weeks, legitimately weeks on end. Okay, that is something that is fairly common around the United States. America is filled with wonderful people who do help out their neighbors and help out their communities. And this is, in backhanded fashion, even being acknowledged by folks who are on the radical left. There's a piece by Samantha Allen, an author and reporter covering LGBT issues. Samantha Allen is a biological male, so himself he is a transgender woman. And he says how real America became queer America, talking about how all of these red states are suddenly treating gay people and transgender people really well. This columnist suggests, on my road trip, road trip through what is ostensibly Trump country, I met many LGBT people who saw no need to flee their conservative home states for the coastal safe havens of generations past, thanks to local progress. In Utah, I made arts and crafts with transgender and gender nonconforming teenagers. Over coffee in the Rio Grande Valley, a non-binary friend told me the region's LGBT people remain as hardy as the prickly pear cactuses of South Texas. And in an Indiana town where everyone knows everyone, a transgender woman in her 50s told me how much things have changed in her area since she first came out over the course of the 2000s. This person said it's so much better, it's so much freer, it needs to be reported. Now, what this columnist says is obviously that's the changing political priorities of these of these different states. But that's not clear. These states are still overwhelmingly conservative and they are socially conservative. These are states where same-sex marriage was not legal when the Supreme Court decided to legalize it across the country. Most of these states are states where protections for transgenderism have not been specifically written into law, for gender identity have not been specifically written into law. Now, this person, this columnist, takes that as, a, as, a, as sort of a puzzling coincidence. Why is it that all these nice people live in places where the law has not been changed to reflect my political priorities? The answer, of course, is that there are lots of nice people in America who don't reflect your political priorities, many of whom are kind and charitable and decent. But folks on the left refuse to recognize that. Case in point today, Vice President Pence is hosting the Irish Prime Minister and his gay partner for breakfast. And the media are treating this as a major story. You know what's not a major story? That. You know why it's not a major story? Because Mike Pence knows lots of gay people. And Mike Pence works with gay people. And he is friends with gay people. That does not mean that on a religious level, he has to agree with all of their behavior. On a religious level, I, a religious Jew, disagree with pretty much everyone's behavior, including my own at times. That does not mean that you don't treat people decently. The left's conflation of policy with treating people differently, with government, with com- compassion, with government action, with force and compulsion for decency, that's the dangerous stuff. That's when you start to demonize people on the other side. And the left, unfortunately, does that on a regular basis. But coming up, there's a new candidate in the Democratic race. 
His name? Beto! Oh yeah, that guy's in. This is The Ben Shapiro Show.